What's up, Ninja Nerds? Today we have a new podcast episode on chronic kidney disease. You already know what to do. Head on over to ninjanerd.org, grab your membership, and follow along with these notes. Follow along with us as we go through this and dissect through chronic kidney disease, learning everything you can possibly learn about this disease. Zach, anything uh, you would like to say here? No, man. Let's get into CKD. Let's blast through this. I think uh, we have a pretty good kind of like quick summary and idea of how to uh, tackle this. He's all business. Let's get into it then. <laughs> Let's start off then, Zach, if you wouldn't mind uh, going over the definition and causes of CKD. Absolutely. So chronic kidney disease is basically kind of similar to an acute kidney injury in, in the sense that you have uh, a decreased kidney function where there is like a reduced urine output or there's an increase in their BUN, there's an increase in their creatinine, or there's a decrease in their GFR. And this particularly occurs over a period of at least three or more months. So whenever you have a patient with CKD, the biggest things to think about cause-wise is that the most common causes, like, like most of them, honestly, is going to be hypertension or diabetes. Other ones that you could potentially consider could be like glomerulonephritis, polycystic kidney disease. And I'm, when I say NSAIDs, it, you really have to be like abusing these, like overuse, like daily, consistently kind of maybe going over the, the, uh, the recommended dose. If you have a prolonged or recurrent bouts of acute kidney injuries, these could also be reasons for chronic kidney disease. So again, I would say the big ones to remember hypertension, diabetes, other less common ones, glomerulonephritis, polycystic kidney disease, NSAID overuse. And again, a real big one to think about also, especially if patients have like recurrent or prolonged uh, acute kidney injuries, these can definitely cause chronic kidney disease over time. All right. So let's start to really get into this, guys. Let's really figure out the pathophysiology behind CKD and some of the <laughs> clinical features that we may commonly see patients presenting with. So when we talk about the pathophysiology and kind of the associated kind of like clinical features that you may pick up on uh, with patients who have chronic kidney disease, it's really straightforward. I mean, obviously the kidney plays a big role in electrolyte balance, water balance, hormones. It actually does make some hormones. Excreting metabolic waste products plays a role in your acid base imbalances as well. And in, again, protein regulation, particularly albumin. So if you think about it, if a patient actually loses their ability of their kidneys to secrete and reabsorb particular electrolytes, you can have a lot of abnormalities or imbalances. Big ones I think are worth remembering is hyperkalemia because your distal convoluted tubule can't really excrete the potassium into the urine. Your potassium in the blood actually accumulates more and so it can cause hyperkalemia. The other thing is that your PTH hormone is supposed to work in the distal convoluted tubule to excrete phosphate into the urine and then reabsorb calcium, but that becomes impaired. So you develop hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. And that can actually be exacerbated uh, because, again, you lose the ability to make a, another hormone called PTH. But from there, other things that can happen is water imbalance. So think about it very simply. Your glomerular filtration uh, process is supposed to be able to push things like plasma, which is consisting of like water and other solutes, out of the glomerular blood into the actual capsule, the Bowman's capsule in your convoluted tubules. If your GFR is low because you have chronic kidney disease, in this situation, you have less filtration of your water across the actual glomerular capillaries into the actual convoluted tubules. So because of that, water inside of the actual bloodstream can build up. Plus, another thing that can happen is that in patients who have chronic kidney disease, their actual glomerular capillaries can be somewhat less permeable, particularly to proteins, and they can lose albumin in their urine. Albumin is also really important to be able to keep water inside of the bloodstream. So not only may they have a lot of like fluid or water that's accumulating inside of their body, but also the fluid might not stay in their vascular system because albumin isn't as much in the actual vascular system as we would like. And so what happens is water actually starts leaking into your interstitial spaces, like in the lungs or in the interstitial tissues of the lower extremities. And so it's going 
unfortunately lead to like pulmonary edema, peripheral like pedal edema. And if it does stay in the vasculature, it can potentially up your blood pressure as well because increased blood volume can't increase BP. So these are particular things. The other thing is you lose the ability to regulate your waste product removal, especially your urea. And when urea builds up in the blood, it's called azotemia. But whenever the azotemia starts leading to clinical like complications, we call this uremia. Now, uremia can look like this in a couple of different ways. One is it can really affect the nervous system and cause like confusion, altered mental status, sometimes even a comatose state and seizures, especially if the urea builds up in the blood greater than about 100. In these situations, you want to be watching out for like seizures, coma, asterixis, any kind of encephalopathy related to the high urea levels. The other thing is it can really penetrate into the pericardium, cause inflammation of the pericardium and a serious secretion into the pericardial cavity, leading to pericarditis and sometimes even a pericardial effusion. The other thing is it can really cause a lot of like waste products to be excreted into the actual sweat on the skin. And whenever this kind of get like actually gets metabolized by bacteria on the skin, it causes like a really frosty appearance. And we call that uremic frost. The other thing is it also binds onto platelets and decreases the activation of platelets to want to bind and actually form clots. So because of that, you have a functional kind of like clotting disorder here where you actually can actually have a high risk of bleeding in this situation. The other thing that I want you guys to remember for CKD is it also is important for making particular hormones. So the big ones to remember here is it actually makes erythropoietin in the proximal convoluted tubule. Your juxtaglomerular cells make renin, and then it doesn't actually make PTH, but it activates PTH. If you guys remember... Um, it plays a role particularly within uh, the process of vitamin D. So whenever we have a patient who uh, potentially has like a, some type of issue with their kidneys, if you guys remember, we have something called vitamin D and vitamin D is actually going to be metabolized in the body into something called 25-hydroxycholecalciferol. Um, and then what happens is that happens in the liver. It goes to the kidney and the kidney has an enzyme called 1-alpha-hydroxylase that adds the hydroxyl group in the one carbon. And that makes vitamin D, active vitamin D. And active vitamin D plays a role within calcium absorption, and it also plays a role in regulating the actual PTH levels as well. So I think one of the big things here is just remembering that there's a lot of hormone imbalances with very chronic kidney disease. So for example, if you aren't able to make erythropoietin, what's the problem with that? Erythropoietin stimulates your actual red bone marrow to make red blood cells. So if you don't have EVO, you don't make red blood cells. That's called anemia if you have lower amounts of red blood cells and hemoglobin in the actual bloodstream. The other thing is uh, particularly in chronic kidney disease, what happens is something very interesting. So whenever you have a low GFR, which is one of the very common themes of a patient with chronic kidney disease, a low glomerular filtration rate due to you know, chronic kidney injury and hypertension, diabetes, what happens is your GFR reduces. When your GFR reduces and you make less urine, it triggers your macula densa cells to activate the juxtaglomerular cells and say, hey, low GFR, we need to perfuse the kidneys a little bit better so that we can make more urine because we're not making a lot right now. And so what happens is the JG cell says, okay, I'm going to release some renin into the bloodstream. Renin then tries to convert angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1, and then angiotensin 1 is converted into angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 then works to be able to try to increase your blood pressure to perfuse the kidneys better in thoughts that it'll help to improve your GFR, but it won't. All it's going to do is increase your blood pressure. And these patients develop secondary hypertension that's oftentimes resistant to your normal types of uh, antihypertensives. The second thing Actually, the third and final thing is the regulation with the PTH. Remember, the kidney plays a huge role in like that vitamin D metabolism. So what happens is your, your kidneys are supposed to be able to reabsorb calcium and excrete phosphate, right? And they're also supposed to play a role in being able to activate vitamin D. Because when PTH works, PTH or parathyroid hormone is supposed to increase your calcium levels in the blood, lower your phosphate levels in the blood by doing what? 
breaking down bones and helping to release some of that and liberate some of the calcium into the bloodstream. They also worked on the kidneys to reabsorb calcium and excrete phosphate. And then finally, they actually helped to activate vitamin D and vitamin D helps to absorb calcium across the gut. If you have chronic kidney disease, you can't activate vitamin D and then PTH can't work on the distal convoluted tubules to be able to reabsorb calcium and excrete phosphate. So where's the only place that PTH can work now? The bones. And so unfortunately, they start really tearing away at the bones. And this can lead to a lot of like CKD related bone diseases, such as renal osteodystrophy, osteotisistica fibrosa. And then also it can really accelerate the potential development of osteoporosis and then subsequent fractures as a complication of that. The other thing is acid base imbalances are huge here because it plays a role within proton excretion and bicarb reabsorption. Think about a patient who has chronic kidney disease, their ability to excrete protons and reabsorb bicarb is lost. So what happens then? is that they actually build up a lot of protons in the blood and they don't have the ability to reabsorb bicarb through those particular like alpha intercalated cells. And so what happens is, is they build up protons, they drop their bicarb in the blood and this lowers the pH and can lead to a metabolic acidosis. This can be both a nagma and an agma. And the next thing is that, again, we already kind of talked about this a little bit, but whenever you have a uh, patient with a very significant type of injury to their, their actual glomeruli, especially their basement membrane and chronic kidney disease, they lose the ability to really control their albumin secretion in the urine. Albumin builds up in the urine. And what happens is if you don't have albumin as much in your blood because you're peeing it out, you aren't able to hold onto the water inside of your vascular system. And so because of that, that actual fluid starts leaking out of the vasculature into the interstitial spaces. And this can cause a lot of third spacing, particularly in the pulmonary uh, structures like the lungs causing pulmonary edema, the lower extremities causing pedal edema. And you know what else? Whenever you lose albumin into the urine, you're, you develop kind of a hypoproteinemia and your liver is responsible for making proteins. So what it does, it says, oh, shoot, very little proteins in the blood. I got to start making a lot more proteins and it starts amping up protein production. But guess what? One of the proteins is that it makes it makes a lot of VLDL. And if you make a lot of VLDL, what does that carry? A lot of triglycerides. So these patients can also develop hyperlipidemia as a response to that. So that would kind of cover the pathophysiology and clinical features, Rob. Okay. And if you guys are getting a little bit bogged down, or this is a lot of information being thrown at you, don't don't be afraid. Get our, get our notes, get our subscription, look through the notes, look through the illustrations, really use a repetitious-based learning system, and I think it's going to help. Absolutely. So let's get into the the, uh, the diagnosis, Zach. What tests, what findings are we going to use for someone with CKD? All right. So diagnosis is, um, again, we use the term GFR a lot, kind of talking about pathophys and stuff like that. But I think GFR is one of the big ways to diagnosing CKD. And again, it has to be three plus months um, of having a particularly like a persistent low GFR. So normal GFR is like, you know, 125 milliliters per minute in a perfect world. And so it's one of the indexes of like kidney function. It's not great in an acute kidney injury. So that's a very important thing. It's more for like chronic kidney disease. And so ways that we kind of like estimate GFR is we can utilize creatinine. So we can look at like creatinine clearance and there's a lot of like calculations out there. Um, another one is like cystatin C, like you can actually measure that and then estimate your GFR for that. But I think one of the big things is when you obtain a BMP, like a basic metabolic panel, it'll give you a GFR, um, like an estimated GFR. And you want to look at that. So obviously it's important for determining if they have chronic kidney disease, if they have a very low GFR, but also is important staging. Um, so when we talk about staging, there's stage one, two, three, four, and five. So stage one is generally like it's regular, like they're normal. Generally, it's just going to be a GFR that's greater than or equal to 90. If it's stage two, it's 60 to about 89. 
if it's stage three, there's two parts. There's three A, if you really want to get into it, it's 45 to about 59. And then for three B, it's about 30 to 44. And then for stage four, it's 15 to 29. And then for stage five, less than 15. Again, that's going to be important for kind of like looking at their GFR over a period of time for at least three plus months. If it fits within one of those categories, specifically less than 90, you can kind of look at your chart and say, oh, it's like 62. Okay, that fits them in CKD stage two. Now that's one thing. The second thing that we also want to look at is the predictor of their disease, which is the albumin within the urine. That's a big one. So generally, whenever we look at the albumin creatinine ratio, which we can test, um, if it, the albumin creatinine ratio is less than 30, that's mild. If it's 30 to 299, that's moderate. And if it is severe, so they have like macroalbuminuria, it's greater than or equal to 30. So that's another big thing to look at. So albuminuria is, again, a very significant predictor of the severity of the disease for CKD. But you can diagnose it and stage it off of the GFR. Other things that we can do to consider like the underlying cause of the patient, it's not a bad idea to ever get a renal ultrasound because this can actually tell you like, do they have like a bunch of cysts? And maybe the reason why they have CKD is because they have like polycystic kidney disease. But also it can tell you a couple other things. It can tell you if the, the kidneys do look like they have some type of like chronic kidney disease or damage. Are they small? Are they atrophic? Are they fibrotic? So that's one big thing. If you definitely have a high degree of suspicion because they're younger, they have potential like concerns for glomerulonephritis, I think a renal biopsy and like checking serology for particular causes of glomerulonephritis is not a bad idea. So renal biopsy wouldn't be a good, uh, wouldn't be a bad idea for that. And then you can check like things like anti-nuclear antibodies like ANA because lupus is a big pot potential cause for uh, glomerulonephritis. You can check like ANCAs. So, you know, this would be a de decent for like vasculitis or like good pasture syndrome. Um, you can check the rheumatoid factor for RF, like for, for rheumatoid arthritis and then I think serology for like hepatitis and HIV is not a bad one as well. If you do think that it's glomerulonephritis. Other additional lab tests that I think aren't a bad idea just to kind of look for any other complications is you can look at a CBC. If you're looking at a CBC, look to see if they don't have like anemia, potentially like an anemia of chronic disease due to a reduced erythropoietin level. Check their BMP. Look for any kind of issues with their K, so their potassium. Look at their bicarb. Is their bicarb low? If their bicarb is low and you're concerned that they have an acidosis, get an ABG to rule out that they don't truly have a metabolic acidosis. Again, check iron studies. And one of the reasons why is if you have a patient who has anemia and they have some type of anemia, remember, Anemia chronic disease can be microcytic and normocytic. If it is microcytic appearing, I would definitely also consider testing for iron studies to make sure that the patient doesn't also have a concomitant microcytic anemia because that's a big thing to make sure that you treat that as well. The thing is, again, because they have risk of hyperlipidemia with higher levels of VLDL and triglycerides now, get a lipid panel, check their PTH levels because, again, when patients have chronic kidney disease, they may have elevated PTH levels. Um, and I think these are big things to consider, Rob, just kind of like off the bat. Okay, sounds good to me. That means we are moving on. Finally, we get to learn how do we treat these patients? How do we manage their complications and hopefully get them back to their normal quality of life? Absolutely. So I think one of the big things is like with CKD, the damage has kind of like relatively been done. You just want to try to really prevent the progression of the disease and then manage the complications. So when it comes to trying to slow the progression, it's really important to figure out what were the underlying causes. So hypertension was the big one. Diabetes is a big one. Glomerulonephritis, again, not too common, but think about it. Probably, you know, again, polycystic kidney disease and any kind of nephrotoxic agents like inset overuse. So in that situation, if a patient is hyper hypertensive, treat their hypertension and think about it. If like these patients do have some type of renin angiotensin aldosterone like dysregulation, treat them with drugs that will target that pathway. 
ACE inhibitors, ARBs would be really great for them. Um, the other thing I would consider is diuretics if they really start to become fluid overloaded due to a lot of the volume. So considering things like loop diuretics, thiazide diuretics, and I would try to like lower their sodium intake so they don't become too edematous as well. The other thing is diabetes. Do they have diabetes? If they do, again, a lot of lifestyle modifications such as weight loss, maintaining a better diet. And then if it's diabetes type 2, obviously try your anti-diabetic drugs, metformin, your uh, GLP antagonists, your DPP-4 inhibitors, your SGLT2 inhibitors, all of those things. And if that's not working, add on insulin. If they're type 1, obviously a better insulin regimen is important. Glomerulonephritis, if it's usually due to some type of like autoimmune disorder or some type of like uh, issue of that nature, then you can consider steroids and then long term DMARDs. Polycystic kidney disease, oftentimes you treat their hypertension because they can be really, really like resistant secondary hypertension. Oftentimes it'll require a renal transplant if it's super bad though. And then if it's any kind of nephrotoxic agent, really try to be able to avoid those things like NSAIDs. And I would even be careful just watching out when a patient is on an ACE inhibitor and they have a pretty bad like acute kidney injury. I would also watch out for those. But trying to avoid any types of unnecessary antibiotics like vancomycin and um, aminoglycosides, amphotericin and antifungal situations as well. The other thing is potentially with these patients, they can develop complications, especially if they develop an acute kidney injury on top of their chronic kidney disease. That can really lead to some problematic issues here, especially like hyperkalemia it can really be a problematic thing. So when a patient becomes hyperkalemic, oftentimes you can try to manage this medically with insulin that kind of shifts the potassium into the cells. Albuterol will shift into the potassium into the cells. If they become acidotic, you can give them bicarb diuretics to excrete the potassium into the urine, like loop diuretics. Sometimes if they can't tolerate a loop diuretic, you can give them like a cation exchanger within the gut to be able to have them poop the potassium out like sodium uh, polystyrene, which is like high oxalate. And if that all fails and you're still having a hard time being able to do that, you can consider dialysis. Hyperphosphatemia in these patients, you want to just give something that actually binds to the phosphate in the gut and actually helps you to poop out the phosphate. So things like cephalomir hydrochloride, hypocalcemia, give them calcium, pretty straightforward, right? Or give them other things that can actually work on the gut to increase the calcium absorption like vitamin D. If they have secondary hyperparathyroidism because, again, their kidneys are actually not really responding to PTH, so they're not reabsorbing calcium, they're not excreting phosphate. You can try to give them a drug that works to be able to kind of like act like a, uh, like a calcium mimic. So it tries to be able to shut the actual chief cells from making any parathyroid hormone in this situation, like Senecalcet, also known as Sensipar, um, or you could just cut the parathyroids out. In situations where they're super anemic, like really bad, you can consider things like EPO. Um, so erythropoietin, you can actually give them that to stimulate the bone marrow to make red blood cells. If they're becoming volume overloaded, same thing we already talked about before, diuretics, lower the sodium intake, thiazide diuretics. And if they're becoming acidotic to the point where it's actually causing a uremic acidosis, sodium bicarb is actually the best treatment for that. Albuminuria. So if this is actually one of the things that they've said in patients who have hypertension, plus they have the albumin in their urine, it's been shown that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are the best situation for that as well. Dyslipidemia due to, again, their albuminuria leading to low proteins, leading to their liver making lots of VLDLs, consider things like statins and fibrates. And then for platelet dysfunction, where they actually have a lot of bleeding due to high uremia, uh, DDAVP such as desmopressin would actually be potentially beneficial. I think one of the last things to consider though is when a patient needs dialysis, and this can be sometimes a little difficult, but oftentimes we can just kind of boil this down in the simplest way possible to AEIOU. So does a patient have acidosis? If they have a very persistent refractory acidosis to a lot of other like medical therapies like bicarb um, and treating the underlying problem of it, then you can consider dialysis. If their electrolyte abnormalities are persistent despite a lot of medical management, 
dialysis? Did they ingest something that we aren't able, it was too late and we can't bind it up with charcoal or do bowel irrigation or whatever. We can't manage the complications of their intoxication. Then we would do dialysis. Are they volume overloaded? We've tried to diurese them with Lasix. We've tried other measures to be able to get some of that fluid off and we still have them volume overloaded. Then we can do dialysis. And are they uremic? That's actually persistent. Everything that we've tried to be able to do to lower their actual urea within the blood is still not helping dialysis. And that would actually be a particular thing. And then you can, again, it's very important. Sometimes you'll actually need to continue dialysis for some of these patients, especially if they're like stage four, stage five. Oftentimes they'll require something like an AV fistula um, to be able to uh, and help them and assist them in being able to get chronic dialysis. So that would cover uh, CKD, Rob. All right. Sounds awesome. That made a lot of sense, Zach. Thank you for that one. I think I learned a lot today. That's good, man. I'm, I'm glad we all got to be able to cover this topic. It is a very, very common disorder. I think that, it, you know, for the listeners out there, this is going to be one of those diseases that you'll actually see a lot. And especially when it comes to hypertension, um, a lot of these patients definitely are going to be having secondary hypertension as a complication of this chronic kidney disease, even though that's actually the cause of it. So it's really important to be able to know this disease very, very well. You're going to come across it. Being able to recognize how you prevent the progression and manage any complications is truly key in this actual disease. So I hope it made sense. I hope that you guys liked it. And as always, until next time. Thank you.